This morning we are in Ruth chapter 2. This is a four-week series uh, in Ruth, and we'll conclude the book of Ruth uh, in, in our first Sunday in the, new, in the new place just down the road. I'm not going to read all of Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read most of it, though, and it'll be up on the screen behind me. I'll be in 1 through 12 and then 17 through 20. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And he said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today was Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of of ours, one of our redeemers. Ruth uh, Ruth chapter 2 is continuing this theme of of faithfulness that was introduced in the first chapter, um, but in a different kind of way. And this here is is a moment where Ruth is being cared for in a way that God has provided care for people like her. Um, She is is engaging in a, a mandated system of care for the poor that was established in the law of Israel. Uh, she, uh, if you can go back and read in the Torah, you can read laws on gleaning in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. I'm just going to read the one from Deuteronomy 24. 
When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner. That's, that's Ruth. She's a foreigner who's in the land. That's a sojourner. You're the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The laws in Exodus and Leviticus are, are similar to this. This is a, not an efficient way to take care of one's uh, investment. A field is an investment in olive trees, an investment in vineyards, an investment in your livelihood. It's not the way to get all that you can out of your field, out of your, out of your economy. It's intentionally inefficient for the benefit of those who have no ability to take care of themselves. Other Near Eastern people have laws somewhat like this to, to take care for the poor and the widow, but it's especially unique in Israel that it's the sojourner, the foreigner, who is also included in these laws that they also have an avenue within the land to have something to eat and take care of themselves. So in the fields, they were told to keep a margin of the field available for the poor to come in and, and do the work of harvesting. Not only that, but they, they could, the poor were invited to come behind the workers, and if any sheaves had sort of fallen off, fallen out of their hand, if, if some olives had been left in the tree after they'd been harvested, um, you weren't allowed to go back and pick those things up. You weren't supposed to. The poor could come in and pick up what you had dropped, and that became a way of sustenance. The implication being that, that you have more than enough. God has provided more than enough for you. And you are supposed to leave uh, edges and margin of that excess so that others who have nothing can be taken care of out of the supreme overflowing abundance of God's generosity. And the definition of what is the margin of the field, you know, that's not quite nailed down here. So there is some degree of, of personal judgment that's involved. And we don't always know that the people in Israel followed all of the laws. In fact, we know that there's plenty of laws they didn't follow. So Boaz here seems to be a man who is himself faithful and generous in his character because he's doing the thing. He's leaving margin in his field, and it is apparently no surprise to him that somebody is in his field working and, and harvesting and gleaning like they're allowed to. He, the only thing he's surprised by is that he doesn't know who this woman is. So Ruth is, is operating in the, the divinely uh, mandated spaces for uh, where she can receive from generosity, but it requires a faithful man to, to leave those spaces as they are supposed to. And there, there's a word there for us as the people of God that you and I are, are meant to see how God has provided for us, to trust that He will continue to provide for us and to care for us, and to not use all that we could for our own purposes. So when you are, are looking at the, the, the field of your life, you're meant to cal calculate your resources not to the hundredth percent of what you might use for yourself, 
But it is wisdom in acting in accordance with the generous character of God to in fact draw the line further in and leave margin for others to benefit from the overflow of God's generosity. And there's a number of ways to think about that, the way that you should calculate that. One of them is, of course, financial. If you look at your, your monthly income, your yearly income, and your inclination, and I think this is all of our natural impulse, is how do I use every cent that I'm given? How may I use every cent that I'm given, both for my needs and for my pleasures? Then there is no space after that calculation for you to just be regularly generous with your money. So that's why uh, the church has continued to encourage its people to give at least 10%. To to teach us all together, you you don't need 100%. God has so faithfully blessed you that you just need 90%. And and it's really not even 90%. You probably can live off of even less of that. And that that isn't said with any sort of flippancy. I know what it's like to not be sure whether you're going to meet your bills or not. I know that sometimes it feels like, well, actually, I need 110%. I don't need 90. I don't need 100. I need like at least 10% more just to make it. I know what that feeling is like. And the, the reckoning is not a math problem, though. The, the logic of this practice for Israel was not based upon the math of their finances. The equation is entirely built around the character of God. And the law itself teaches you that. If you listen again to Deuteronomy 24, the final line is is the hammer for us. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's not that you can calculate, not that Boaz could count all of his heads of wheat and say, Okay, now I can be generous. The calculation is God is supremely generous in the way that he takes care of his people. I can afford to leave the margins of my field for others. And if you look at that same sort of scenario with your finances, you could probably say, you know what, my margins may be very small. And that's not the point, that your margins are the same as mine or, or, or somebody else's. The point is that we look at all of our stuff and we say, our, my stuff comes out of the generosity of God. God will continue to be generous and care for me. Some portion of what I have can be given away. And often, if you're like me, you just have to sort of set the practice of being, I am not a generous person, Okay. Full disclosure, my inclination when somebody tells me they have a problem is not for me to say, let me help you with that. My inclination is to say, good luck with that. I, I, I have me to take care of. My wife is much better at hearing and saying, hey, why don't we jump in and help with that? And I have to be like, fine. <laughs> You're probably right, fine. She is the, I married into my generosity. You know what I'm saying? I I didn't have it within me. I I had to marry it so that I would have some. So if you're like me and you're not a naturally generous person, what you're invited to do is make a habit of generosity more than a feeling of generosity. If you don't feel generous, that's not the point. It's to be generous. 
And maybe one day you and I, me together, this is my hope, will back our way into feeling generous. But if we can together make a commitment that God is himself a generous God and we will continue to trust that whether we feel like it or not, then God starts to change us and to overflow that generosity into the lives of others. Now, it's not just money that's, that's a resource that you have. Time, energy, creativity, everything that you have is a resource that God has given to you out of His generosity. And if your modus operandi, if the way that you do things is, I'm going to use every ounce of everything I have for my end, then money isn't just your problem. Maybe for you, the real struggle is time. Maybe there is no margin in your time for other people to benefit. Maybe there is no margin in your mental or emotional energy for you to give even a a spare ounce of care for somebody else. For some of you, money is the easy part and you cop out of the other stuff. But the other stuff is stuff that God is coming after too. Because through the resources of his people, the church, you and me, God provides bountifully for people who have nothing. And here you may find yourself in a a place in your life where you may be on the other side of the equation. You, You may be more like Ruth and Naomi. And you're saying, I have no idea how I'm going to make it time-wise, emotionally, energy, financially. What you are meant to do is find fields to glean here. You are meant to find in your church, in this church, a place where you can be cared for out of the margins of, of generosity that somebody else has accumulated. And Ruth here is, is faithful. She is a faithful woman. She is in a position of humility. She is identifying herself as a poor person. And she she is not so overwhelmed by the shame of that that she misses out on the provision out of God's generosity. And so if you are in a place of deep need and you are ashamed of your need, Shame can keep you away from how God wants to provide for you. It may be that the most difficult thing that you must do is put your hand up and say, I need help. But if you don't put your hand up and say, I need help, you are self-excluding, not gleaning from the generosity of God And God doesn't want that for you. There is here a choice for you. Just like there is a choice for the central characters in the story. Boaz seems to be a man who is faithful, not just to leave the margins of his field, but who lives his life with an eye towards the presence of God. He he rides into his field and greets his workers in the name of God, in the covenant name of God. And their response to him is in keeping with that. He uses the, the covenant name of Israel's God, not some other title, 
say, that God, Israel's God, the Lord bless you. And they respond in kind. His heart is inclined, it seems, to pay attention to what God is doing in the world. And that, that thing is, is kind of what Ruth is about for us, the reader. Because we, we've been introduced to the problem of Naomi at the beginning where she has lost everything. And as she has looked out over the course of her life, she's lost her sons, she's lost her husband, she is destitute in a foreign land before she comes home. She feels as though God is opposed to her. She feels that God has set his, his face against her. And nowhere in the text of Ruth is there an explicit refutation of that feeling. The, the writer doesn't stop and say, let me tell you why Naomi is wrong. This is why, theologically, that does not make sense. We can identify with Naomi. We can understand why she might feel like it. But the whole short story is itself a demonstration of the way that Naomi is wrong and the way that God will prove himself to her. Because as the text says, sort of at the beginning of this chapter, there is a man named Boaz who's in the field of play. If you just read Ruth 1, you don't know that that's even a possibility. It seems like all hope is lost. But then there's just that little line in Ruth 2, actually there is a man named Boaz, a member of the clan of her husband. And Naomi doesn't speak of him. Ruth doesn't speak of him. But Ruth just says, I'm going to take advantage of this way that God provides for his people. And she goes and she meets Boaz, and Boaz is kind to her. And Boaz says, stay in this field. I'll make sure you're safe. I'll make sure you're protected. You can not just glean, but you can have water that other people will draw out for you. And then she comes home. And she gives, lays it all out for Naomi. This is what I've gotten. And Naomi, because she's from the town, she wants to know, where were you? Whose field were you in? And Ruth says, I met a man named Boaz. And Naomi says, huh, that's weird. Boaz is one of our clan members. He he is a redeemer for our clan. What a wacky coincidence. Page turn, write it off. That's weird, isn't it? The the text will, will tell you that Ruth just happened to come to Boaz's field. But as the reader, you and I are moving through the text. You and I are meant to continue this, to gather this sense. This is not just a coincidence. This is not the gathering of of happy coincidence, of, of luck or chance. Something is going on here. And this end of the chapter two, when when Naomi discloses to Ruth, actually Boaz is in our clan. He can do something for us. He can help us. You and I are meant to see clearly oh, God is doing something. And this is sort of the way of God's working in the world. I I know I've seen this time and again, where I have felt in the middle of being abandoned by God and confused. And, And shortly thereafter, after a series of circumstances, coincidences, I stop and I look back over the course of my life and I say, oh, there you were the whole time. 
I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it. I wasn't paying attention, or, or I was, and I just didn't see you. I have lots of, of incidences like this. When we were first married, <clears throat> I was working at a job at the Boys and Girls Club uh, at a teen center in the Boys and Girls Club, and I hated it. I was, I, I was, I, I got a job out of college in my major with salary and benefits, and I hated it. I was really bad at it. I didn't know what I was doing, and nobody was teaching me how to do what I was supposed to do, and then they were mad at me when I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I just didn't, I hated it. I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave, but I felt like I was supposed to stay there. This is where I am. Also, I have no other options. So I need to pay bills and we need to eat. I'm just gonna stay here. And it was at a conference for that job that I met people from South Africa, which without meeting them, I would never have decided that I wanna go to South Africa. And it just so happened that in that same span of time, my parents happened to meet a very famous person who shouldn't care about them or me at all, who decided to send me an email about getting to a church in South Africa. And that year in South Africa was transformative for my life and my wife's life, for our whole family's life forever. And it only would have happened through this series of unlikely coincidences and circumstances that only at the end of could I turn around and say, that's why I was in that stupid job. By the way, it's a great place to work. You should work there. You would like it, I'm sure. <laughs> that kind of thing has happened to me all the time. It just happened to me earlier this week where I, for some reason, really wanted a Diet Coke. I don't drink that much Diet Coke. I just wanted one really bad, and I knew at the gas station right outside the cove I could get a can of Coke, and I just wanted one can. I wanted it cold. I wanted it from there, and I was like, this is stupid, and I argued back and, back and forth with myself for like 20 minutes, and finally, forget it. Dishes are done, kids are asleep. I'm going to get a Diet Coke. And I just left to go get my Diet Coke. And as I came across, around the corner of the cove, I happened to come upon somebody at the exact moment where I needed to be there for their safety and their sake. And I had no way to explain why that happened, except that God would use something stupid like a Diet Coke to get me out of the house to be someplace I would never be at any time. God is at work in the world. This is one of the, the dominant themes of Scripture. That God is at work in the world in unseen ways. And, and out of that conviction in Scripture comes this tremendous tension and heartache. Because was he not at work in the world in the beginning of Ruth 1? When her husband and her sons died. And the people of God feel this profound tension all throughout Scripture. Heartbroken at, at the weight of the, the way the world is and the way the broken pieces of the world fall all around us and, and pierce us at times. And yet we feel it especially painfully because we are also deeply certain that God is in the midst of things doing and working in the world. 
And the really, one of the really frustrating things about Scripture is that it won't tell you the answers to all the questions that you have. It won't tell you why Elimelech died, why God would let that happen if he's at work in the world. All it will tell you is that he has not abandoned his people and he will work for your good and for his glory and he will not stop. And this is ultimately the, the kind of hinge that, that turns the book. It's the thing that swings the story. And Boaz recognizes it in his words that he says to Ruth. He, he says to her that he will be faithful to her because of the way, and God will be faithful to her because of the way that she has come to him. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Scripture will not, Ruth's story will not lay out for you all of the secrets of God's providence. All the secrets of God's sovereign working in the world, He will not lay before you. The book that most clearly beats on the door of that question leaves Job without an answer except for this, that you should come and trust God. Ruth is never told why her husband is taken from her. Naomi is never told why she's left a widow, why she's left without her sons. But what you are invited to trust, what I am invited to trust, is that those are not the final facts of the matter. But that instead, God is secretly working something out that you cannot see or discern yet. But it will be unveiled to you, and you will see that He is good. Because this is the nature of God, the very nature of who God is is that he will take ugly and horrendous things and not say that they weren't actually ugly and horrendous, but out of the rubble of it, pull something out that is beautiful and redemptive. For the Lord is our Redeemer. The central symbol of our faith is a declaration of the tr this truth about the world and about the nature of God. The crucifixion of Jesus is a horrendous, brutal, ugly, shameful thing that a profoundly good man was executed and humiliated for no just reason. That is horrendous and ugly and violently so. And yet God deigns to pull out of the apparent worthlessness of that death the redemption of the whole world. This is the way that God works in the world. The wings that He extends over His people are the arms of the cross perpetually spread wide for any and all who would come under His refuge, to come at His pierced side, to feed on His body and His blood, the God who, who takes what is grossly evil 
and says, that will not yet have victory, nor will it ever. People of God, you are called by Ruth's story to do as she has done, to respond to the invitation of God, to say, I don't know what God is doing in this world. I do not understand why things are thus and so. But yet I trust him that the God who was crucified and resurrected will yet redeem and restore me. And I do not know what that will look like in this life or the life to come, but I know that there is no enemy that God has not conquered. And out of his generosity, I will forever and always find life and sustenance. See the crucified and risen God before you, the God of Ruth and Boaz. And come, let him spread his wings over you and be your refuge and redeemer. Would you let me pray for you? Jesus, we confess to you that we, we look at our entire lives and often we are caught up in the calculus of ourselves. We are stingy and miserly We are self-interested and self-obsessed because some part of us does not believe that you could yet be so generous. We ask, God, that you would help us to listen to the truth of your promise. A promise not rooted in our calculations of our finances or our time, but a calculation rooted in your character. The God who would rescue his people will forever redeem and restore them. Jesus, you are greater than anyone we've ever met. We are the beneficiaries of all your generosity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help those who are here who are feeling destitute, empty, done. I pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, Free them of the prison of shame. Let them open their mouths and confess to you and to others, I am in need, I am in desperate need. And show how you can provide and care for them. And Father, let let those those of us who are here who feel like we have more than enough, help us to to be committed to, to living out of less than what we could so that we can have room to give away and give away because you are the God who gives away and gives away and gives away. And for all of those, those of us who are here now, in the future, in the past, who are confused at where you are and what you are doing in the world, Father, help us to respond to the, to the word that is before us. You are doing things that we cannot see. And we can trust you to continue to be good. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that there is no evil so dark that you cannot bring redemption to your people. You have already done so with us, and we trust that you will continue to do so forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.